for those of you I don't know, uh, one of the, 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 the problems you've got in this class, if you're watching for the first time or attending for the first time, is I'm a trial lawyer. That means, like Mike Riddle and, and a few other folks that I can see around here that are lawyers. I saw Moriarty somewhere earlier today. Um, that means there's something wrong with my brain. <laughs> see, when I was in law school, like in the first week, we had a professor who told us and warned us, law school changes the way you think. It really does. It You, you don't. You, you start seeing the world a little differently. Everything you see, you start analyzing. You start trying to figure out, could I sue over that? You start, it's just something comes over you. And the professor warned us. He says, you'll realize this is happening in small, subtle ways. Like some morning over breakfast. While you're sitting there, you'll find yourself reading the warranty on the toaster. And enjoying it. And sure enough, that's what happens. And, and, and I think some of it is, as law students, one of the things that we were indoctrinated and taught to do is to critically examine issues. To critically examine ideas. To try to follow chains of thought to see where the chain is a consistent one. Or where the chain has, has, has a flaw. And so I think some of the way this came about is because of that tendency of a lawyer to need to cross-examine. Um, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it makes people always say to me, so do you and Becky have like spectacular fights because you're both lawyers? You know, that could really be phenomenal. But then Becky always reminds me that she has two law degrees and I only have one. So she's twice the lawyer I am. So I give up. But but there's this tendency as a lawyer to cross-examine things. And there are times where Becky and I are together and she says to me, she says, time out. You're just being a lawyer here. You're cross-examining. Don't do that. And I say, oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. I forgot I'm not human. And so it, it's a very real part of our nature. And I'm just confessing it. You know, it's not just cross-examination. I test things for a living. I have experts that I'm going to cross-examine. And I'm going to put them on the, or they're going to be put on the stand. And I've got to show why what they're saying is not the truth. And the easiest and most um, correct way I can do that is to take whatever they're saying and test it to see if it fits. If someone tells me, you know, I had a case one time where the expert witness on the other side, there, there was a subdivision up here where the benzene level in the water was 10,000 times the legal limit. And you had an entire subdivision using that water unaware of it. And I'm trying the case and a lawyer and, and the other side puts an expert witness on the stand who honestly, under oath, says, hey... 10,000 times the legal limit's not unsafe. That's, that's no big deal. That's fine. And I said to him, I said, because I'm testing. I want to know if he, I want to know, does he really believe that? So I said to him, I said, you don't really believe that, do you? I mean, you're just saying it because they're paying you $500 an hour to come here and say it. And he says, no, I absolutely believe that. 
And I pulled out from under council table a jar of mason jar of water with benzene, 10,000 times the legal limit, certified to by the Department of Chemistry at Rice University as being exactly that. And I said to him, I said, so I guess you'll drink this in front of all of us. He, you could see it in his brain. He's sitting there thinking, well, they're paying me $500 an hour, but that's not enough to get leukemia. I'm not going to drink that stuff. And he wouldn't drink it. And the jury knew at that point that he didn't pass the test. So this is what we do as lawyers, and it may be horrible, but you're stuck with me as a Sunday school Bible study teacher, life group leader this morning. And so I do that. Yeah. So here's the problem. I've been testing the gospel of John. Say, Lanier. You're a teacher of faith. You're not supposed to. I'm sorry. I can't help but want to test it. I want to know if this stuff that I believe is authentic and valid. So, for example, one of the things that I've suggested to you is that the Apostle John wrote this gospel somewhere between 70 and 90 A.D. We base that upon church history. We base that upon the way the gospel is written by the one who's loved by Jesus, who is leaning against his chest, who could only be John, the apostle. So we've got legitimate reasons inside the Bible to believe it. We've got uh, just church history is unanimous on this point for the first 200 years after the gospel's written. You find in 185 A.D. writings of church history affirming it to be John. You find even before that, Polycrates writing and affirming that it's the, the John. So you, you've got all of this stuff. But was it? Next. I have suggested to you in this class that John wrote this gospel from Ephesus. Ephesus is in Turkey. Ephesus is on the coast of Turkey. Actually, now it's about two miles inland. But then it was the coast. It just the harbor kept silting up. And so I've suggested that John wrote this from Ephesus. Why? Principally off church history. Church history is unanimous about this. That John went to Ephesus sometime, either after the death of Paul to help nurture the church there, that would be around 64, 65, 66, probably 67 A.D., something in that range. Or John went there after the Christians fled Jerusalem right before the Romans conquered it in 68. But we've got evidence not only of that, we've got uh, uh, early church writers saying John's buried in Ephesus, that John went to Ephesus, that John nurtured the churches around Ephesus. What else? A third thing that I've yet to suggest in this class, but I will when we get there, is that Paul wrote a letter we called Ephesians. And he wrote it, it's called a prison epistle, because in Ephesians 3, verse 1, it says, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord, write this to you. So now, 
What does all of this mean? John wrote the gospel. Jesus wrote from Ephesus. I mean, John wrote from Ephesus and Paul wrote Ephesians. I think John probably wrote this gospel around 85 AD, but somewhere as early as 70, as late as 90, around 85. Now, think about this for a moment. If you were a member of the church at Ephesus, at the time John the Apostle is there, before John's written his gospel, you've got a letter from Paul. And this isn't just, hey, gee, that's Paul. Paul started the church at Ephesus. Paul lived there and ministered there for multiple years kept close ties with that church, had an emotional attachment with the leadership of that church. Don't you know that a church that's existing before the New Testament's been put together, when they got that letter from Paul, they absorbed that letter. They studied that letter. They made copies to pass around to the different life groups that met in the different homes. And they read that letter and they knew that letter and that letter informed their doctrine and that letter informed their beliefs. That letter informed their ethics. That letter informed how they related to each other. That letter, we use Ephesians today as scripture. But when it's the only scripture you've got outside of the Old Testament or one of the few I suspect they may have had Galatians. I suspect they may have had 1 Corinthians because I think Paul wrote those letters while living in Ephesus. So I suspect they made a copy. We'll get to all of that later. But just isolate it right now to what we've covered so far. If John wrote his gospel in a church that had lived and breathed and studied and taught and, and, and dwelt upon and meditated upon and used the letter to the Ephesians. Don't you think we ought to see evidence of that in the Gospel of John? Don't you think it's reasonable if John wrote his Gospel in a church that had had this incredible gift of the letter from Paul that we would see some kind of indication of that? In In the ideas, in the vocabulary... If you were here to hear Alistair McGrath speak last uh, a couple weeks ago, two weeks ago, he said when we're talking to the unchurched, what good does it do to say, uh, you know, that in Jesus we are justified? Justified is a church term, but outside the church it means make sure the margins are right. And we have to talk in language people understand, he said. That's true. But when you've got a church who's got Paul's language, don't you think John, when he writes his gospel, would write it if he's writing it for those people in the language and thought forms that they've already got? Shouldn't we see that in the gospel of John? So what happens? So I started looking. This is the trial lawyer in me. I just want to check. So I start looking at all the commentaries. Nobody's answering my question. Nobody's even asking it. So um, I start re-examining my premises. Did John really write the gospel around 70 to 90? 
Well, that's what the evidence indicates. And it's compelling evidence. It's not like, well, 51% yes, 49% no. It's like, yeah, I've got to make some major academic leaps to deny that and deny significant church history. All right, so maybe John didn't write from Ephesus. Well, that's all the evidence we've got. We've got no evidence that says he wrote from anywhere else. And that is, that, that, that is really hard not to accept when you examine the early evidence of church history. So maybe Paul didn't write Ephesians. You know, Paul's writings, generally, his letters have personal salutations. In Philippians, he urges Yodia and Syntyche to live in harmony and quit fussing. He didn't use the word fussing. He uses the Greek equivalent. And, and, and Ephesians does not have any special designations calling out anybody by name. So some scholars say Paul must not have written it. But it says, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord, write this to you. And then what most scholars recognize is that Ephesians was written as what's called an encyclical letter. It was a letter meant to be passed around. The Ephesus church was a huge church, so it would have gone in lots of different homes. It was not the kind of church yet where there were one or two people that you single out in a letter like that. This letter was written, at the, the think of Ephesus as like the Lubbock of Asia Minor. It's the hub and everything radiates out from it. You've got shallow water, you got Slayton, Mule Shoe, Amarillo, Dallas, Los Angeles. Everything radiates out. And Ephesus was the, the center for Christian life. And every, the, it radiated out from there. So there are reasons... Paul wrote it. So I go back to this. If I'm going to test the gospel of John, I need to know where's the evidence. Now, do you want to know where the evidence is? Have I got your interest at all? If you're interested, we're going to talk about it. If you're not interested, just consider this Bible study. Interested. Let's go over here. I'm looking for common themes. I'm looking for common doctrines. I'm looking for common vocabulary. Now, all of Scripture draws upon the matrix of God's story. Creation, fall, prophetic, coming redemption, and that redemption with a promised future. So there is going to be a commonality just by nature of that. But can we find some things that seem more than the simple drawing upon the common matrix ideas of Scripture? That's what I wanted. So I made my way down to the local theological library. And I started going through all of the books I could. And there are hundreds of books on the Gospel of John. And I didn't read them all. But I, I went through a bunch of them through the index, looking for Ephesians or Ephesus, and then cross-referencing. And the one book I found that's got much to say about this at all 
is this book by Thomas Brody, The Quest for the Origins of John's Gospel. And Brody says in a couple of pages, oh, it's so clear, it's like John wrote uh, uh, the high priestly prayer of John 17 with Ephesians in his hand. And he calls it, what's it, he says that John has a systematic use of Ephesians. I thought this is going to be it. I've got it right here. This is great. So I start reading. Well, he says, someone really ought to study this. And gives you nothing. Other than that one chapter 17 stuff. I thought, ugh. It is so much easier to read what other people do and just critique it. If it's good, yay, that's very good. If it's bad, tisk tisk, that's really sorry. It's so much harder if you've got to go reinvent the wheel. So I'm warning you now, this lesson is a reinvented wheel. It may be totally out to lunch, but it's just the lawyers looking at it. And so what I did when I wasn't able to do that is I, uh, I just basically took Ephesians in the, in the Greek and just worked through Ephesians in the Greek, comparing it to John in the Greek. And uh, from that, I got a few things. I got seven of them for you today. And so you didn't have a 30-page lesson to keep up with over the next week or two. And also to give me leeway of saying this didn't go so well, so I'm just bailing on it. I only wrote the first seven up and then put the rest in there as homework for you to look at. Giving you some clues. Here's where I start. There are seven touch points of commonality I want us to look at together this morning. And then next week, God willing, and if I don't change my mind, y'all don't send me a bunch of hate mail, we'll look at some more. But first, you're my focus group. I'm going to see if you can figure out one. Hey, you may have already read ahead, but bear with me here. The takeaways. What is the one verse that everybody most readily knows from the Gospel of John? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whomever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life, right? That's the, if anybody knows a verse out of John, oh, they may know some more, I am the way, the truth, and the life, or in the beginning was the word. But the one takeaway that most people have out of that is John 3.16. If you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life. Now, Not as many people have a takeaway from Ephesians. But some do. And I suspect if we were to take a poll of the ones who have a takeaway verse from Ephesians. Anybody care to shout out what yours might be? 2.8, all of those. For, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works, lest any man should boast, but we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works which God prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. Look at the takeaways. John 3, 16. Whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life. Ephesians, saved by grace through faith. Now, Let me add to that takeaway of Ephesians. When we say the word grace, we have a tendency to think of it as as an adjective, an attribute. God is a gracious God. But grace, 
Were you in church this morning and did you hear Dr. Fleming make us repeat 30 times? The free gift, the free gift, the free gift. The word in the Greek is the word grace. Grace is the free gift. The free gift. So the free gift or the grace, Paul, when Paul uses that word, he's talking about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. If you have any doubt at all, you can, you can find it in every page of, of his writings. When you see Paul talking about the grace by which we're saved, he's talking about the free gift Jesus gave for us. His death, burial, and resurrection. So now, whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life. Paul's saying, you are saved by Jesus through faith. Let me tell you the word faith is the noun form of the same word believes. The word that John uses for believes is the same word, just in a verb form. That Paul uses in Ephesians. So you've got the same takeaways. It's the idea that the the one thing we remember out of both. But that's not determinative to me. As a lawyer, I'm sitting there thinking, okay. But I mean, you find that takeaway in a lot of different parts of the Bible. I want more than that. So let's go to number two. This is a little bit more detail oriented. The heavenlies. Now there's a Greek word for heaven. Uranos. Oranos means the heavens, the skies, the stars, the, the celestial bodies, the heavens. It's a word that Paul knew. Paul used it. It's a word Matthew knew. Matthew used it. It's used in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew. Our Father, pater hemon, ho in tois uranois, who is in the heavens. It's, it's a word that's used in the Bible. By Matthew, Mark, Luke. John knows the word. But then there's this other word. Epirinois. Where you take the urinois or urinos and you add epi to it. It's like the super heavens. It's like on top of the heavens. It's above the heavens. It's the heavens of the heavens. And the only people to use that word in the Bible are Paul. And John. John uses Paul's word. So Paul, for example, uses it. I put out for the Ephesians. The Ephesians knew this word well. Paul uses it in Ephesians 1.3, Ephesians 1.20, Ephesians 2.6, Ephesians 3.10, Ephesians 6.12. It's part of their vocabulary. It's the way they think. It's in there. If you look at Ephesians 1.3, if we could go to the Elmo for a moment. Ephesians 1.3 says, let's see if we can shed some light on it. Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. It's translated there instead of heavens as heavenly places to show us different words being used. In the heavenly places, God has already, and if you you read carefully the Greek here, here's what Paul taught the Ephesians. That you, 
have been blessed. It's already happened. Historically, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ Jesus. Now, think about it. We've got to be on this for a minute. I may not get through our seven for this. You can take some home and study them. We may hit just three of them. Don't worry, I'm not going to run you till 2 in the afternoon. But to get this, you really need to absorb it. Because you've got to have 15 years of an Ephesian church that studies this letter all the time. David's going through Romans this year for us. But this is one where it's not even as long as Romans. It's a seventh of the size of Romans. So in one year, if he goes through Romans, you could go through this letter seven times like that. Year after year after year. It's part of your life group. It's part of your Bible study. It's part of your, your quiet time. You go through this stuff. You learn it. You, 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 you absorb it. And you are taught over and over. I remember when Harvey Floyd taught this to me in 1981 at Lipscomb University in Nashville, Tennessee. We were translating this in the Greek. And he pointed out, you have already been blessed in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing. Don't think, Lord, I need a new spiritual blessing. You've already got it. Now you can pray for it to be delivered, but it's already been bought and paid for and credited to your account. You've already been blessed in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing. You've got them in the heavenlies. Now you just need to pray it here on earth, but in the heavenlies, it's already done, finished. Is that not a tremendous thing to know? Okay, now, you're John. You're writing your gospel. And John writes his gospel. And if we go back to the PowerPoint, we're going to see John 3, verse 12. There, John 3, verse 12. It's the Nicodemus story that David also spoke on this morning. In the Nicodemus story, if we go back to the PowerPoint for a moment. Nicodemus is talking to Jesus and Jesus is, uh, we were almost at the PowerPoint. I'm sorry, I said PowerPoint, I meant Elmo. Y'all are doing it right, I'm saying it wrong. Thank you. So Jesus is telling him that you've got to be born from above. You've got to be born again. You've got to be born fresh anew. And, and, and Nicodemus says, hey, how can this be? How can I have the blessing of getting born again? And Jesus says, Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Truly, truly I say to you, we speak of what we know. We bear witness to what we've seen, but you don't receive our testimony. Look at this. If I have told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? John uses that same word that no other gospel writer uses. That only Paul uses. John takes Paul's word for heavenlies, epiranos, and he uses it in the Nicodemus story. So now, what if you're an Ephesian and you're you're hearing and reading John's gospel? And John uses this word that's part of your fabric Because you know you've been blessed in the heavenlies, in Christ Jesus, with every spiritual blessing. No wonder someone who's not in Christ Jesus won't understand. Because the blessing in the heavenlies is in Christ. 
So now you've got Nicodemus here and Jesus is saying, bless your heart, you can't understand this. You can't understand what I'm saying about earthly things. How are you going to understand the heavenlies where you've been blessed in Christ Jesus with everything? The only way is to be in Christ Jesus because only Christ has that blessing. Only Christ has been in heaven. Only Christ knows the blessings in heaven. If you're in Christ, you've got a, a re, you've got an understanding you don't have otherwise. With me? All right. So I read this in my research. I'm thinking, well, now that's kind of bizarre. If we go back to the PowerPoint, thank you. I, that's kind of bizarre. You know, that's unique. Maybe that's a one-off, but it clearly is a one-off. So I keep reading. And then I read this stuff in John about how, or in Ephesians, because I was reading out of Ephesians first, then going to John. How Paul says in Ephesians 1, 3 through 4, that we were chosen before the foundation of the world. Eklegomai, chosen. An unusual word. And so I go back to the gospel writers. And it's used, I think, once by Matthew. It may be used once by Mark, where God, Jesus chose his apostles. But John uses it not only for choosing the apostles, but only John. First of all, John uses it a ton. And only John uses it about choosing outside of the apostles. The idea that God chose us. What Paul is saying, what Paul explains, John says, had its genesis or origination in what Jesus taught. So we can see John 15, 16, and 19. Let's look at that. and We'll see how we're doing time-wise on how many more of these we can cover in class. John 15, 16 through 19. Let's see. John 15, 16, and 19. Okay. Now, Jesus says, a little while, what did I say? I said John 15. I'm sorry, that's the wrong verse. 16 through 19. Here it is. Okay. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you that you should go out and bear fruit and your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask in my father's name, he'll give it to you. Look at verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But not because you're not of this world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. I chose you. John makes it clear, as Paul does, that Jesus didn't just select his apostles and the rest of us picked him. Jesus has chosen every person who accepts Jesus. Jesus calls us out. And he did it, as, as David said, it wasn't an afterthought. See, David's preaching Romans right now, which is Paul. And David's preaching how Romans says, before the foundation of the world, if you go to that Ephesians passage that I'm looking at, it's Ephesians 1, 3 through 4. It says, blessed be the God and Father who's blessed us in Christ in the, whoops, in the heavenly places, 
Look at the next verse. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's a very Pauline thought that would have been real to the Ephesians. All of the Ephesians, just as much as they had known that every spiritual blessing was theirs in Christ in the heavenlies, they knew that they had been chosen from before the foundation of the world. John says the same thing. John says, in essence, hey, hey, this did not start with Paul. Paul is accurately reflecting the words of the Lord Jesus who said, I chose you. In fact, if we go back to John and look at John 17, 24, this is is real compelling to me. This is in Jesus' prayer to God before he goes to the cross. Look what he says. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, the ones you chose for me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Do you see that phrase? Before the foundation of the world? Look at what Paul said in Ephesians 1. We have been chosen before, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. You do your Greek homework and you'll find nobody else in the entire New Testament uses that language except Paul and John. Paul is taking, John is taking the language that Paul has already instilled through the divine providence of the Holy Spirit. And this is not just some, oh, gee, look how neat that is and how how coincidental. This is the fabric of, of the way God works. This is the miracle of God working through man and the Holy Spirit to produce this scripture that produces such a marvelous tapestry to behold. So that we're able to look there and see, Paul has told them he chose you before the foundation of the world. And John tells us how Paul knew it. Not simply out of theology. Jesus himself prayed, God, I'm praying for those you've given me, those you chose from before the foundation of the world. Now, do you realize we've got evidence that's building up? And I got to tell you, my own personal study at this point, I was like, okay, I believe that this works. John passed the test, but being a lawyer, I want to make it through all six chapters of Ephesians and see if he only passed the test in the first four verses. Well, it's not just in the first four verses. The riches of his grace, I've given you the verses and you can look at them. Paul says that he has, Paul says it 1, 7 through 8. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses, According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Think about that. The riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. You want forgiveness? That's where you get it. And what's his grace? When Paul says grace, what do we need to picture? The cross and the empty tomb. So we have forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of 
of the death of Christ and his resurrection. The riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us. God didn't just give us the righteousness of Christ. He lavished it upon us. He has poured it forth. It's overflowing. This same concept, John 1, 16 through 17. Here's the way John says it. He says, from the fullness, from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, if I'm an Ephesian, let me tell you how this opens up some of John to us. First of all, instead of saying grace lavished upon us, he says it's grace piled on top of grace. It's the same picture. But for Paul, Paul had taught the Ephesians and the Ephesians knew that their forgiveness of their sins, their redemption came from this lavished grace. This helps us better understand what John's saying. John says, hey, You got the law through Moses. But you got grace and truth through Jesus lavished upon you. Your redemption, your forgiveness that Paul said came from grace didn't come from Moses. You could never get forgiveness. You could never get redemption from the law. The law was a marvelous thing and Moses was a great fella. But he could never give you redemption and forgiveness It only comes through the grace, the death of Christ, which has been lavished upon you, which is poured out upon you, which is piled grace on top of grace on top of grace. You see how the the two work together quite well? Aside from the fact that this is the only, John's the only gospel writer to use this language. Again, this is language that's unique to John and to Paul. All right, what else do we have? Well, Um, Paul talks about in Ephesians 1, 9 that all things have been united in Christ. I don't have time to get into it. John says the same thing in John 17, 26. Jesus prays, God, would you please unite all things in me so that people will know that you're in me and I'm in you and I'm in them and they're in us. All things are united in Jesus Christ. Just as Paul said it. Number six. Paul says a couple of times in Ephesians that we have God's seal, the seal of the Holy Spirit that's marked us. Ephesians 1.13 says, um, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, a seal was a, a good Hebrew term. Under Hebrew law, seal, you can think of it like a notary. It would be on a document to show the authenticity of the document. It would be on a jug. It could be on a number of different things, but a seal showed something was authentic, like a signet ring, okay? A seal. John uses it, and Paul uses it, in a slightly different way. And only will you find this in Paul and John. In Ephesians... You see it here, that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't just mean that you were stamped authentic. It means that the Holy Spirit has put his authority over you. 
It means that you are a representative of the Holy Spirit. It means you show forth. When you wear the seal of the Spirit, it not only confirms who you are, but it's something you're showing to the world. And this is the same way John uses it in John 6, 27. When he talks about how God's seal was on Jesus Christ. So it's it's a tremendous, another example of something that's unique to these two. Last one, and then we'll have points for home. Jesus as the giver of light. Now, I wrote that in your outline or in your uh, manuscript as Jesus a light giver. And I thought, well, that sounds like he doesn't give very good things. I didn't realize that was a really bad pun if you took it the wrong way. Because he's not a light giver. He's a heavy giver. He gives tons and tons and tons and tons. It's not like, oh, great, it's Christmas time. I'm going to get like a card from Jesus. No, I mean, you're getting every present in the world. Okay. He's not a light giver. All right. So as I had to change it. I need to change it in your things. He's the giver of light. And you're sitting there thinking, well, of course he is. We know that. But we don't segregate out if we don't stop in minute for a minute how we know that. We know that from the writings of Paul and John. I mean, Jesus in Matthew does talk about being uh, you're like a, a light set on a hill. But that's different. That's, that's a different nuance. So look, for example, at Ephesians 1.18. This is one of my favorite verses. I pray this verse routinely and have for a long, long time. This has been a verse that's been a part of my prayer life for longer than I can remember. I don't remember when it started. I'll tell you, I think it was probably a part of the prayer life of the Ephesian church too. I'll bet you the Ephesian church had prayer meetings where they just prayed this over people and over families and over folks who were lost and folks who were struggling. Look at this prayer. Paul says, for this reason, whoops, thank you. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Okay, how? Here's the prayer. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, the immeasurable greatness of his power towards those of us who believe. This is Paul's prayer. Paul's prayer is that the eyes of your heart would be opened and and enlightened. That you would have the eyes of your heart enlightened. Well, do a word search. You're not going to find the idea of something being enlightened anywhere in the Bible outside of Paul other than the Gospel of John. And again, this is one where John uniquely sets this up. John 1, 9 is the passage. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. Now, when John writes this to a community who's been feasting upon Paul's prayer, who've been praying that In Christ, the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. Isn't it refreshing to hear the enlightenment comes from Jesus, the true light, 
who is going to enlighten everyone in the world. There's no light outside of Jesus. Everything else is darkness. And it's a theme that John seizes on and he uses not only in his gospel, he uses it in the first epistle. He uses it in the book of Revelation. But it is a thread that is so John that sometimes we may forget that Paul wrote this same sense to the community in a wonderful prayer, and it was Paul's prayer for the Ephesians that they would have the eye. You know, in a very real sense, this is kind of lawyer bizarreness maybe, but in a very real sense, Paul was praying that John would write his gospel. Paul's praying, may you Ephesians have the eyes of your heart enlightened. And then John comes back two decades after Paul's dead and writes the gospel that enlightens their hearts. And it turns on the light about Jesus, the pure light and who he was. Which for me tells me God's not just working in 2013 at Champion Forest Baptist Church. He was working at the first church of Ephesus and the second church of Ephesus. And the third church of Ephesus. John writing this gospel is not just God's inspiration at putting together scripture so that we'll have the breadth of scripture. It's also a direct answer to Paul's prayer. That the Ephesians would have the the, the eyes of their hearts enlightened. That they would know the incredible riches. Look at this. This is what he wanted them to know. And this is what John's gospel delivered. To know the hope to which God's called you. The riches of his inheritance. The immeasurable greatness of his power. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And he seated him at the right hand in the heavenlies. That's to me just remarkable. It's a... It's a It's a confirmation, if we go back to the PowerPoint, it's a confirmation that we're not just saying, hey, I think John wrote this, and hey, I think church history's right, and hey, we put our trust in it. It passes the litmus test. And I've given you a ton more that you can go work on. And if y'all like this, we'll go through them together next week. But it passes the litmus test. So you've got lots more you can do. But for now, we've got points for home. What I've done on each of these points for home is grabbed a passage out of Ephesians and out of John that echo each other. So the first one, Paul says in Ephesians, his grace, which he lavished upon us. John says it grace upon grace. This is what we have in Jesus. By the way, that should not be John 20, verse 30. That's an error there. And it's probably in your lesson as well. Sorry, typo. Um, The grace he lavished on us is in John 1. The site's right in the section, just not in the point for home. But what does this tell us? He has lavished this grace upon us. Now, I got to tell you something. I want the cross of Christ to feed my life. The grace is the cross of Christ. The resurrection I want that to feed my life. If he's lavished it upon me, he's made it all of this. I want that to be why I get up. I want that to be why I work. I want that to be why I I show love to my family. 
I want my love of my wife to be a reflection of Christ's love. That grace lavished upon grace. I want the way I treat my children to reflect the love of a father who understands what it is to lavish grace upon grace in a responsible, accountable fashion. But I want this to inform my life. I want people who see me, who interact with me. And it's hard when I'm in a lawsuit against the bad guys and they got bad guy lawyers and I'm supposed to be beating them up. You've somehow got to do it. Beating them up with the love of Christ. I'm working on it. I hadn't gotten there yet, but I want it to inform me. Number two. Paul says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. John says, I chose you out of the world. Jesus says later, John 17, before the foundation of the world, God gave them to him. Um, Don't think that means simply that God picked you out to be saved. If you read it in context, God chose you to be holy. He chose you to be blameless. That's what Paul and John are both saying. He didn't choose us to be like everybody else. He chose us to be different. And that he calls each of us by name and he chooses us just as much as he chose the apostles. Makes me want to respond, I am so ready. I want to be changed. I don't want to be like the rest of the world. I don't want to be in the mud. I don't want to be in the slime. I don't want to run and live in fear. I don't want to have to be insecure in who I am. I want to be exactly what God has called me to be, enables me to be, wants me to be, chose me to be. And I hope you do too. Last one. This is my prayer for you. Any hearing this message, my family, my friends, my loved ones, I just want to pray a blessing over you from Paul. I pray, God of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father of glory, that you would give everyone listening a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you. Lord, that they would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened, By the one true light, Jesus. That they may know the hope to which you've called them. That they may know the riches of the glorious inheritance that you have for them as saints. That they may know the immeasurable greatness of your power toward them as believers. According to the working of your great might that you used in Jesus when you raised him from the dead. And seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places to whom we give all glory, honor, and praise in his name. Amen.